from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer, therapist, and teacher that has written a dark work of fiction that exposes a sinister program from America's not-so-distant past. He mixes fact and fiction into a horrific combination of historical horror. He's joining me today to discuss the work entitled Fear the Reaper. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of David Sims. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this sixth day of July 2023. I came across your book, Fear the Reaper, by a recommendation of Ruth Ann Jaggi and was really intrigued by the dark historical subject matter. You brought to light a period of our history that had been swept under the rug and wove an elaborate horror story throughout its most nefarious elements. So I'm eager to talk about it with you and excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you. And I'm just happy that people are still talking about this book. It's incredibly special to me. So. Absolutely. So the book is about a man named Samuel who fought in World War I and became a psychologist. The story takes place in the 1930s when the American eugenics movement was in full swing. He relocates to Stanton, Virginia to work for a mental asylum because of the interest of an authority in the eugenics movement being impressed with an improved version of a cognitive ability test that Samuel had developed. So when Samuel first agrees to relocate himself and his family, what is he led to believe is going to be done with the results of his test? This is actually based on a true psychologist who actually created the typical Stanford Binet IQ test that we still take. And he was led to believe, both in fact and fiction, that it would be used to help detect any birth defects, any other mental disabilities or anything else like that with children and with pregnant mothers, and just to help them decide whether or not Pregnancy and childbirth would be a good idea, and also for kids and young adults, if they can be placed properly in schools and to get them the right type of education. So it was meant with the best intentions. However, we know where that goes. <laughs> yeah, so 
was it more based on cognitive ability or was he questioning them about things like history of mental health, history of medical issues in the family? Was there any biological stuff that he went through or was it purely just like, you know, red is to blue as, you know, those typical mm -hmm. kind of cognitive tests? Yeah, it was mostly the cognitive test. I mean, now he obviously part of the rest of it. Now he knew that the eugenics movement did go into the biological aspect in a really heavy fashion there. However, that was not his realm. He knew that Joseph Dijonet and the rest of the eugenicists would be focusing on that. So his job was basically to come across and evaluate somebody. And the cutoff was, as it still is today, about 100 points, 100 of an IQ point score of 100 points. If you were 100 points or higher, that means you were, for lack of a better term, cognitively okay. And if you were under that, then you were slated for anything special that happened to you. The good things about getting extra help are the bad things, which would be sterilization and a whole lot worse than that. Well, so when People think of eugenics and forced sterilization, they usually think of Nazi Germany, but most people don't realize that Nazi Germany's programs were heavily influenced by American programs. So did you use this historical information because it's good fodder for a horror story or were you wanting to shed some light on it? And can you tell us about your inspiration? Oh, definitely. I was embarrassed to not know much about this at all. And I consider myself a history and science nerd as well as psychology. <laughs> so yeah, I love all this stuff. I'm a Jeopardy fiend with this stuff. I know everything about nothing. <laughs> so when I moved down to Stanton, we were driving downtown and I said, wow, that must be one of the college campuses here. And no, it's not a college campus. It was a former mental asylum. And I looked into it and I found what was here. And then I dug into the history I talked to a friend of mine, David Burrell, who created Rambo and, and some other things. And we sat there at a conference and I told him about this idea that I want to write about this dark hidden history. And we talked about it for about six months. And he finally said to me, he's like, you know what? I can't find another fictional book about the eugenics movement at all. And I said, that's pretty disturbing. And we both got pretty upset about it, thinking, why has this never been covered in fiction before? And he looked at me, he said, you know what, Dave, if you can write a half-assed novel about this, it'll do well. And I said, I can do half-assed pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I did. I uh, aim to try. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, yeah. I'm going all the way halfway. So I had no lofty expectations about this. I love finding hidden histories and as one person called this inaccurately, but he called it a social justice novel. I was like, no, it's not it. But if it helps sell me, that's fine. <laughs> but with my life you know, working in mental health and special education, I'm always fighting for the underdog and really trying to shed light on what should be enlightened. And so all that combined together to do this. And the last thing I want to do was something historical because, God, that's a lot of work. But once I discovered my passion for it, I just went full throttle. And two years later, it was done. Okay. And your recounting of the hospital, you live close by or? Yeah, I live less than a mile away from this right now. Right now. Oh, right now. Okay. Yep. It's a Western State Hospital. Is uh, that yeah. Yes. Western State Hospital, formerly called Western State Lunatic Asylum. Yeah. Okay. And they do have a modern version of this now. It's about a mile away from where it is. So they do have one that's actually doing the right things now. And they do have a children's version of it, too. But the original one is right down the hill from me. It's really close. 
Oh, okay. Because I looked it up. So I assumed the one that was functioning was just like a renovated version of the old. But you're saying the old is just like not functioning anymore? And then <laughs> yeah. they've got this separate one? Or You want to talk disturbing. You know what it functions as now? It functions as a boutique hotel. Yes. <laughs> Condos that go up to about a million dollars per thing. And those condos have bars on the windows and apartments, loft apartments where the patients stayed. They run you about $1,500 a month. So about a third of the complex is, is now renovated. And the rest of it, the graveyard and all the other buildings where a lot of the experimentation took place is just left unused. So, uh. yeah, and they just moved all the renovated hospitals just further up the road. Now, do they play up the reputation of this building at all? Or they just keep it like, no, no, we, we don't yeah. know what you're talking about. This is just a nice building where we sell expensive <laughs> <laughs> residents. Or, or are they like, yeah, we want to live in a haunted, you know. I found out Yamstead really quick once the book came out. I had got a lot of threats about me going into the deep and dark history of this stuff. Uh, most of the threats came from old people who really? they said, this never happened, Stan. How dare you besmirched the uh, history of our fine town? And I said, screw that. And I said, what are you going to do? Take your teeth out and come after me? <laughs> so, but I also got a lot of support from the mayor at the time and some other people. But the hotel itself, the staff will often display my books. The owners of the hotel are deniers that this ever happened. I also do a ghost tour in town. And one of our stops is right across the street from the hospital. And we've gotten a lot of flack about that. I had to tone things down. Just because and it's like, it's like, you know, you can't stop history. If you bought an insane asylum with a dark history, you have to own it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the former. You do own it. <laughs> yeah, Literally. <laughs> that, you bought you, it, motherfucker. <laughs> that's exactly it. And that's what I've said. I have to be good with my comments because I don't own the ghost story. I'm just the main guy there. So I have to be careful with how I do things. However, when I do my book signings in town, I let it all fly. And a lot of people who aren't from the hotel, who live in the condos and apartments, they'll come by and they'll tell me all their ghost stories. And they read up on the history and they've read the book, everything else. So, you know, they know it comes out. But even the Augusta County uh, Historical Societies have denounced all of this happening. And I said, well, what about the unmarked graves at back, the tombstones with nothing on them or tombstones with numbers? I said, how do you explain that? They said, um... I don't know. And they have nothing. So. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah. People will spend their bullshit any which way possible. So, <laughs> Well, circling back to the book, as we've been alluding to, a lot of the characters are the historical characters. You use a lot of the real individuals from the real eugenics movement, like the uh, Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's, who were some of the wealthy benefactors that funded the movement. And Davenport, Grant, and Desjarnet, I think I'm pronouncing that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Were real individuals as well. So can you tell us a little bit about the real life Desjarnet? And did he completely parallel the Desjarnet in the book? Or did you take some artistic license? I took a tiny bit with his family because there were rumors about a son that may or not have been as described in the book. But mm -hmm. everything else is right on target. I read a lot about him and he was pretty much an ass. Uh, he used to write poetry <laughs> about uh, comparing people to pea plants. 
He was a terrible poet, by the way. Well, awful mm-hmm. poet. He thought he was amazing. You mm-hmm. can find his poetry online. Most narcissists do. <laughs> True. But, 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 yeah, you think you know, that's the understatement of the century. But he was a terrible man. Again, he wanted to inspire other people to do what he did. He wanted to inspire Hitler, and he was very, very, very jealous of Hitler. And he wanted to do exactly what Hitler did. So a lot of his personality was right on target from my research. Of course, I mean, I took some license with that. But from what I researched, I tried to keep his personality intact as much as I possibly could. So, yes, and Davenport and um, Grant and everybody else, I couldn't find much on them as people other than, obviously, if you're pro-Nazi, <laughs> pro-Holocaust and genocide, you're basically an asshole. So, so yes. <laughs> But Dishan himself, he didn't hide his aspirations at all. Yeah. Well, one thing I wondered about, there's mention of the FBI's complicity, which I know about like COINTELPRO during the civil rights movement with the agent provocateurs infiltrating Mm -hmm. the Black Panthers and things like that. So was your mention of J. Edgar Hoover, and I've heard the term G-men. Yeah. (laughs) Is that a real thing? And if so, were they involved in this? Yeah, from what I discovered about it, I mean, the G-Men, that was just a slang term that was used back then that was accurate. So, oh, so G-Men is kind of like fed? It's just, it's not like a particular... Oh, no, no. Everybody, especially in the South, very, very paranoid about the FBI agents, everybody else coming in. And especially with uh, eugenics, they were all afraid that somebody was going to take them away, kind of a like a precursor to McCarthyism. So that was a real thing. And anybody who was either siding with the Nazis, which kind of weird there because eventually they were helping that cause. But they were anybody who was going against this movement because the movement was funded by the big bank rollers of the Rockefellers and Carnegie's and everything else. So I couldn't prove anything, but I think a lot of it was financially based. And because there were ties to Woodrow Wilson ties to Roosevelt, which was really odd because he was actually, you know, disabled. But again, it was one of these things where like I couldn't find how much it was political and how much it was uh, big money. I think the two were intertwined. But again, I think what I found out was Hoover was sending people out to squash basically the bad press that was coming out post, you know, Wall Street crash and post everything else. They wanted to really squash the movement of basically talking bad about the government, talking bad about anything else, is that we can't have this bad publicity in the time of rebuilding. Yeah, that's one thing I wondered. You mentioned that big business and government were intertwined. There seems to be one part in the book where I feel like I remember you kind of intimating that if Carnegie, Kellogg, and Rockefeller refused to fund it, that they were going to suffer some ill will. So I was like, well, is it the government pushing it or was it big business? Or I mean, it may not be that simple. I may just be defaulting to my movie (laughs) (laughs) watching of movies, expecting some Bond villain sitting in a high back chair, petting a cat in his lap or something. That That could have been. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Hey, we don't know what happened back when Madison Grant and the Rockefellers could have been Mm -hmm. some hairless cat sitting on their lap. Yeah, could be. What I found out was both on Blackwell's Island in New York City and all the eugenic centers up that were mostly based in the New York City area that if you would consider a grant and kind of like the Joseph Mengele's and some other people, they were kind of the brains behind this stuff. And the Rockefellers and the Carnegie's and Kellogg's and everybody else, 
they just bought into this and saying, hey, let's make America this amazing place and let's just weed out anybody who's not perfect. And they call them defectives and unfit. Mm-hmm. And I found a New York Times headline from 1915. It said, 15 million defectives must be eliminated, not treated or dealt with, but eliminated. And this was on the New York Times. So scary stuff. And, and who paid for that? But Rockefeller. So I think the brain trust behind all the stuff did come from the eugenic societies, but it was definitely paid for by the bigwigs. And I think the government got involved more so to kind of keep a lid on the bad press. They were actually spinning this as good press. Basically, it's saying, hey, you know what? America's coming back now. It's kind of how America was in the 40s, 50s, everything, white picket fences and, you know, a husband, wife and 2.5 kids and everything else like that. I think this was the start of that. They just wanted to paint America as the perfect society, which it definitely wasn't. Yeah. Circling back towards the asylum, Western State Hospital, Mm -hmm. as you said, it was originally referred to as a lunatic asylum, but obviously we're not not using the term lunatic anymore because we've progressed as a people. But it's kind of an example of how things have progressed, not only in the terminology we use, but also the treatment itself. I mean, as far as I know, they're not lobotomizing people anymore, are they? Yeah. I know they still do some, probably not what they did originally, but I do know they still do some sort of electroconvulsive therapy where mm-hmm. they do put the electrodes on the head. It's a last resort usually, but I do know one person that's actually undergone that. Yeah, it's funny how things circle around. They actually sell something online now that's actually promoted by psychologists and psychiatrists. You can actually buy that for $200 and actually give yourself a shock treatment at home. Of course, Is that the much, thing that connects to your ears? It's connected to your ears and to your temples. Oh, okay. And you basically wear it like a headset. And I tried it years ago for migraines, and it was helpful. But again, way back, it was more of a massively last resort thing, too. And it caused a lot of pain to hopefully reset your brain like a computer. Now you can actually ask for this treatment and doctors and psychologists, they will actually ask you, would you like to do this? So everything's more voluntary now. But yeah, I've known people who've undergone this too for various things. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of what I was getting at was because it's progressed, you're a mental health professional yourself. Are there any changes you think need to be made currently? Oh. I mean, yeah. is that is that an entirely different episode? Do we just need oh. to schedule that and then we'll we'll come back to it at a later date? I guess think we could talk about that for a few weeks. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, yes, mental health treatment has progressed by leaps and bounds. I mean, obviously, you're not put away and locked away and killed or sterilized anymore. However, I work with people, and I was talking to you, a therapist friend of mine earlier. And again, the amount of people who are locked out of mental health treatment is staggering. Even right now, most people can't get it through their uh, health providers and insurance. I mean, and then yeah. out of pocket is at least one to two hundred dollars a session. That's if you can find somebody. And I have several students who are awaiting treatment for some serious, serious cases, and they can't get it. And once they do get it, it's pretty much here. You know what? Shut up and take a pill, which is helping nobody. All it is is driving up big pharma. So it's gotten better. However, pretty much right now, it's here. Pop a pill pay me the money and we'll see you on your way. And it's just exasperating the situation and making it worse. But yes, we have gone forward, but figure with all the mental health professionals out there now, this should be a slam dunk in actually making this easier. 
But for some reason, and I blame insurance for the most part, is that, again, if insurance dealt with this the right way, then big pharmaceuticals would be out of business. That, I think, is the main culprit there. And I don't think it's paranoia at all. It's just I see that from my own clients I've worked with and through the school systems I've been involved with and through parents and other people have gone through it. Again, this can be done through normal therapeutic means, but everybody wants to just push the drugs, push these high price sessions. And even the mental health professionals I know are so against the cost and everything else, but they're locked into it. Yeah. I mean, as far as what insurance is doing to make it almost impossible for therapists to accept insurance has kind of trickled its way into psychiatrists, even, you know, MD psychiatrists are to the point where they spend more time on the phone justifying their actions than they do treating patients. So they've stopped taking insurance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was this one therapist I used years ago after, oh, that's a long story there, but just caught a really, really close school shooting incident I had undergone. And thankfully, it did not come to fruition. I worked with her for a few years, and we became colleagues and friends afterwards. She told me pretty much that many insurance providers were pretty much saying no, and no, and no. And if they did go through it, they said that she would be uh, putting money and she would be losing money mm -hmm. if they didn't comply with their demands. So she eventually went out of business because of that. And she had to go back to work in the hospital. It was horrible. It was horrible what they were doing to a good therapist. Mm -hmm. Well, circling back to the book, Sam or Samuel, I'll call yeah. him Sam for the yeah. sake of brevity. <laughs> That's yeah. what his friends called him, I think. Yes. Sam was a very complicated character, which I love. I can't stand characters that are easy to love or hate, because to me, that means they're not very well-developed characters. But Sam is not without skeletons in his closet any more than the villains of the story. So what were the feelings you were trying to evoke in the reader by giving Sam such conflicting character traits? Well, I just want to make him real. And again, I didn't base him off anybody in particular. It just, it came through some trial and error. And I just figured, okay, well, most people at that time who were involved in, you know, mental health, they were aware of several things and they can either bite the bullet and push forth, or they can push against that, the movement and be locked out of the system. So if you want to make it into that world, you had to go along with it. So when I was developing him, I knew that he had face some demons there, both with his wife and the child and everything else. And just to go through everything he's gone through, and you often hear about those demons that a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists who are generally the most screwed up people in the world, which I definitely endorse. <laughs> I know I am. Uh, <laughs> I will never say I'm normal. And uh, I think my students call me the weird teacher, which I own that <laughs> entirely. But I think all the conflicting things I've gone through, and we've all had skeletons in our closet, but I think in his world, the skeletons, he's trying to justify so much of his life, either knowing that he did something that was wrong or knowing that he's going into a pretty controversial field and a job. And he knows exactly where the end game is going to be, even if he doesn't know the details about it. So I want to really strip off all the band-aids there and show him. I mean, again, I'm a fan of, deeply flawed characters and some of the best characters in history have been you know more anti-hero more cross between protagonist and antagonist and i want to make him so hard to like but also 
give him that redemption arc that hopefully people would follow along. I've heard from so many readers, they said, you know, Sam was a real asshole, but like <laughs> you made me like him. I was like, I don't mm. know whether to take that as a compliment or, or a criticism, <laughs> but I'll take it as a compliment. But I've heard many things where like they hated him at first or they hated him in a middle book or they hated him at the end and different things. And, and so I'll go with that. But again, I want to make him not an easy person to root for. Yeah, I think I would take it as a compliment because they're basically telling you that you made them like an asshole. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and hopefully that's not reflecting back on me too much. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, when Sam is being given a tour by Dejanet of his quote treatment rooms, there's comparison made to Dante's Inferno and the Circles of Hell, which was an apt metaphor. Was Dante's Inferno what you were envisioning when you wrote the layout of the hospital? And is there any direct correlation with the layout of the real hospital? Because when I was thinking about this, I was wondering if it's still semi-functioning. You know, at the time, I thought it still semi-functioned mm -hmm. as a hospital. Was there any kind of tours that you could take? Have you ever actually been in the building? Oh, I've been in there several times. I go in there mm. once every month or two just because, I mean, who gets to walk through their actual novel? I oh, mean, nice. It's surreal. So... I'm lucky enough to actually have that luxury of walking through the setting up the novel whenever I want to, which is great and also frightening. <laughs> but I didn't think about it at the time. It was more of a subconscious thing. And once I was writing it and I realized I put that in there, I said, wait a minute, there's a reason why I did this. But the layers of the hospital, especially the main building for Dijonet, start out with uh, the top level where they did more office work and they went further down into the basement. And that's where the more heinous experiments happened. Now, of course, they were doing experiments throughout the campus, but again, in Dijonet's main purview there, it did go down in the circles of Dante's Hell, so it did mirror that. I just didn't realize I was doing it at the time. When I was editing, I said, okay, I definitely want to go with it, but it was one of those things that just kind of crept out of my weird psyche. But again, it did mirror the actual layout of building. Start at the top, more office stuff, and so you went down to the basement, and the basement, which is still hotel rooms right now, that is now viewed as the most haunted floor going. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that. But yes, so it did go along with that. And I am a big fan of Dante's Inferno as well. So I feel like this question has the potential for us to go off into the weeds, but I have to ask it. Go for it. Are there any either real or urban legend events associated with the hotel since it's been functioning as a hotel? Oh, constantly. Depends on what people believe and they believe in hauntings, they believe not. I mean, but nothing real life, like something you'd find in the newspaper? Uh, no, nothing oh, in the okay. newspaper. However, something that they did find on the graveyard, which is like vast in the back, people do perform certain types of ceremonies that are more of the cult variety. And I've actually gone through there and found deer femurs and other bones and different offerings on the graveyard. So I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but that oh. part is true. Yeah. So don't ask me to explain it. I have no idea why they would do that there, but I remember taking another author on a tour and as soon as she saw this massive, like a three foot femur, she's like, I'm out of here. So, <laughs> yeah. But that part has made it to history. So does it seem like something like maybe some kids got together and we're doing some weird stuff or you said it's deer I, yeah, I hope it's deer. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're talking about actual satanic, yeah. ritualistic. Cult well, activity. here's the thing about the Shenandoah Valley where I live. There's a huge contingent of covens here for white witchcraft, and you know, so basically the nicer 
version of it. Just, and I've talked to some of them after some tours and some other things. And they did say, yeah, there are some groups on the darker side. Mm-hmm. who would like to uh, perform rituals all around town where they consider to be high energy fields. And I've studied that part because there is a parapsychology department in the University of Virginia, oh. part of their medical school of all places. So they've thought, okay, high energy field for electricity, something else like that, this would be the best place to conduct their rituals. And I have witnessed some of the rituals around town, and I don't think they're part of the white witchery. They're definitely part of the bad side. But I have no factual evidence about that. So I assume when you say white witch, you mean like Wicca or some sort yes. of paganism? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just gone by their terminology. People I've talked to, they've considered themselves pagan can be construed as either positive or negative. So when they say the white witch, they think that that is more positive aspect to it. So, again, I don't want to speak for everybody out there, but that's the groups I've talked to have considered themselves the white witches. Yeah. You know, You bringing up the white witches or, you know, just any kind of cult activity, it just dawned on me. I don't think I ever planned to ask you about the, I can't pronounce it, the Bells? Oh, yeah. Something or other? Uh, Bell Snicklers, yes. Bell Snicklers, okay. Yes. Yes, those seem oddly specific. What are they based on? (laughs) Oh, okay. I am so happy you brought this up because I actually use this on my tour and I've had so much fun playing with that. Basically, okay, we're going to get really weird here for a second. So have you ever heard of Krampus? Yeah. Okay, so basically, guess what? When they formed the Shenandoah Valley, when they found it, rather, they brought over the German and Austrian mythology. And mm-hmm. one of those groups were the Krampus people. And why it wasn't St. Nicholas, I have no idea. And <laughs> so they called it Belsnickling over here. I'm not too familiar with the origin of the name. And what they would do around Christmas time is dress up like Krampus with these big, horrible, hideous outfits that should be for Halloween, but they weren't. And they would go through and seek out the bad kids. And it was more of a kind of a fun thing to do on Christmas Eve, knocking at the doors. And if you could identify who they were, they would give you candy and gifts. And if you couldn't figure out who they were, you'd give them food and liquor and things get ugly really quick. So, but <laughs> yeah, it was, it sounds, sounds like a lot of fun, but they would do this wearing these hideous outfits on Christmas Eve. And most of these people were considered mountain people and they had little enclaves into the backwoodsy areas, which I've discovered some of them. And they were not quite outcasts, but they just kept it themselves away from the general population. And we have here a living museum where you, walk through and see different Irish to German, American, Native American villages. And when you go to the German one, they actually dress you up as male stinklers. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating and macabre at the same time, but they try to put a sanitized view on it. And it pretty much was okay. But again, I want to bring them out into the story as basically being just real people who felt strongly about their heritage. The reason I put them into that, because, again, viewed as mountain people, they were one of the first people to be experimented on and sterilized by Dijonet because uh, they didn't count in quotes. Uh, okay. Yeah. I don't know why when I read the description and kind of the general feel of those guys, I just thought about the people at the orgies and eyes wide shut. <laughs> I was like, are these guys part of some weird sex cult? What's about to happen? I thought this was weird enough. <laughs> that, that would have been much cooler. <laughs> I, I'll bring that into the sequel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As it turns out. Uh, yeah. Well, 
probably the most lovable character would be Samuel's younger half-brother, Colin, who's deaf, but throws one hell of a fastball. Yeah. So if it's not some sort of ethics violation, can you tell us about some of the talents that some of the kids you teach have? Oh, definitely. In fact, I explored this in my other novel, Dark Muse, which is more of a middle grade YA thing. And those are based on my former students directly. Mm. And some of those people that I worked with are amazing musicians, amazing athletes. And again, everybody has a splinter skill. We all do. I mean, we suck at everything else. Like I'm a decent musician and an okay writer, but I suck at like just about everything else. And I found <laughs> that some of them are shut out of playing in your typical sports and some other things might actually show like this really skewed talent in something. I have a former student who's a drummer who had a bevy of physical ailments and they want to keep him sheltered forever. And now he played drums with Santana and Europe. Yeah, exactly. So nice. yeah. And like, wow, wish I can do this. And the <laughs> athletes too, sometimes uh, work with uh, students with autism who very similar to Colin here, who can be an amazing athlete. And there have been several people who actually thought that a lot of professional quarterbacks were actually on the spectrum or kind of psychopathic in a way that they have no empathy, which could be a lot of uh, different mental aspects. I mean, I'm kind of looking at Tom Brady right there. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. Uh, But (laughs) no, I'm not kidding. Um, But (laughs) I hate the Patriots. I hate, I I can't stand him. But so again, everybody has a skill that comes out. And again, a lot of the students who I work with, a lot of them were squashed because they said, you know, you're not good enough for this. And a lot of the big hearted people I work with brought out these skills in these students and let them shine. And for my career, I've seen these students who've been part of sports teams, been part of bands, been part of everything else like that, and to really come out. And again, I've seen amazing musicians and athletes come out with the skills that, that kind of like Colin, but some go way beyond that. And we used to have posters up on my classroom walls about people with disabilities who've gone on to do amazing things in life, like Einstein and uh, Nikola Tesla, Ben Franklin. But again, that's part of the splinter skills. I've heard from somebody else that Bill Gates, he has Asperger's syndrome, and he had to learn social skills from other people. Brilliant man Mm -hmm. for computers or anything else, but he had no idea how to talk to people and basically had to be taught by his mom and other people else like that to learn how to function in society. So that's more of a current thing. But yeah, Einstein, yep, one of the greatest minds in history. But again, I think he did terrible in school just because he didn't fit in. Yeah, another good example is uh, Temple Grandin. I don't know if you've ever heard her. Heard her? No, no. Yeah, she seemed to. I don't know what the word would be. Just kind of had an intuitive sense of how cattle were feeling. She had, uh, oddly enough, the vegetarian listeners will probably not <laughs> like this, but she developed humane ways of slaughtering basically but she was a very low functioning autistic woman that managed to go from being completely nonverbal and never leaving her parents farm to being an entrepreneur that she was not only independent but independently wealthy <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah she's another interesting if you've never read that book mastery by robert green the i don't know if you're familiar with him the guy that yeah. wrote the 48 laws of power that mm-hmm. is an amazing book i will write that down yeah but i digress <laughs> no, no, back, back to your book sir <laughs> Uh, So you being a mental health professional yourself who teaches special needs children, 
it must have been hard to go to those dark places in the book, especially the ones involving children. So how did you manage your own mental health during the writing of the book? Uh, it was tough. I mean, and there honestly, there are two scenes in the book I will never go back to. I can't even talk about it with people because when I wrote the one scene about the boy in the corner with the ISIS, I cried writing that. I cried afterwards. And people came after me. They said, you know, you're a bastard for doing this. Why did you do this? And I said, you know what? Because this happened and it still happens in some way, shape and form today. And mm -hmm. people need to understand that this is reality and we like to tuck it away. But again, the stories that I do know in reality, unfortunately, are 10 times worse than what I've ever written about. Things I have nightmares about that students have told me or I've experienced those scenes in that book are completely whitewashed compared to what I've heard from these people. But again, I've had to block those scenes out just to cope with it. Because again, uh, I knew that I'd be selling the story short. And also the people who I worked with, if I didn't go deep and dark there. And so I've heard from other special needs teachers and some other mental health professionals saying, okay, well, I'm glad you did that because people need to know what actually happened. And, and then I put in quotes, in parentheses, whatever, because it's still happening. And I said, mm. yeah, it's still out there. So I didn't want to go there and it's still a scar on my psyche, but I had to. Any uh, mental palate cleanser? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. I, yeah, it's funny. I am surrounded by guitars down here in my library. So, uh, yeah, I sit there and I'll jam away on some heavy music. I'll turn up the distortion and just play along to some metal tracks, and uh, that will do it. That'll do that, it. Yeah. And honestly, right afterwards, I started writing a middle grade novel right afterwards. So I went right into the light after <laughs> that. So, yeah. Mm. So heavy metal and writing for kids. Uh, yeah, it seems to mix perfectly. Yeah, I think the most interesting one I've heard was uh, Judith Sonnet, who writes really dark splatterpunk, really particularly brutal scenes. She says she'll sometimes have to stop and watch the monsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever read Jack Ketchum. Um, the name sounds did, familiar. Did The Girl Next Door, Off Season, Offspring. He passed away a few years ago brutal brutal horror real psychological things and you could read them once and you feel like you need to take a shower and acid afterwards <laughs> but the sweetest most friendly most humble man possible and i asked him the same things and he said well the same things music was his sap basically to clean his soul afterwards and mm. it's amazing how music will do that yeah well speaking of other writers and your writing influences were you inspired by any particular writing fluence that had done something similar, wove a fictional story around a historical event? Um, there are several. For this one, F. Paul Wilson, who is one of my idols, he did Black Wind, which was a historical thing about World War II. And he also did some medical experiments in another book called, of all things, Sims, but he spelled it wrong, S-I-M-S. <laughs> so that, uh, Dan Simmons' early work, I forget which title's there. And again, my conversation with David Morrell was, uh, really helped out because I know he went historical. So things like that, and again, just some of the classics, too, that were considered horror. But again, they went deep and dark and historical truly did tap into some of that early early history and where the horror and the historical kind of came together. And again, I fought the historical 
<laughs> tooth and nail. I did not want to do it. But again, mm-hmm. I was drawn to it. But again, I've had the pleasure of meeting every one of my favorite writers. I've only missed out on one, Ray Bradbury. And so, you know, writers are such a humble sort that I've been able to ask them, what do you think about this? Should I go here? Should I go there? And every one of them said, go for it. They said, you need to do this. Mm-hmm. So it was great to have that, great to have that inspiration and that motivation. Mm. Well, great book all the way around. Fearless, Thank you. brutal, complex listeners at home. Make sure to check it out. But you had uh, mentioned you have a young adult novel that you've got coming out. Now, I remember, I think you said late June, early July. So has it come yeah. out or is it? It's about to. It was okay. a slight little, not hiccup, but it was just a delay with some of the interior work. It is called uh, Curse of the Barons. It's about kind of my take on the Jersey Devil through a kid's eyes. Gonna get I'm a Jersey guy, unfortunately. And <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, no, I, I love Jersey. It's just just can't afford to live there. But anyway, yeah. it was part of the Ameriscare series started by legend Elizabeth Massey, who just won the Lifetime Achievement Award from um, HWA. Mm. And she started it, and they asked me to write a few novels in that. Basically, you take one state and uh, follow up with some folklore or some mythology or something and weave something around that. And I said, I'm definitely doing this. So that one should be out any day now, and that will be available everywhere and i'm really looking forward to that and the subsequent novels i'm working on which next month will have to do with alaska and maine but again i'm so excited to get to play in somebody else's series even though it's a completely standalone novel Mm -hmm. and you mentioned it was currently under option by uh warner brothers was it correct yeah not 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 because of me, but because of Beth yeah. Massey. Yeah, that's <laughs> undergone some of various incarnations and options there. But again, Warner Brothers was the last group to actually touch upon it and to option it. So, I mean, crossing our fingers, that would be made into a really cool series, kind of like a, the history theme goosebumps, as I would call it. Hmm. Okay. Well, as far as your writing process, do you pants or outline? And can you tell us about the process? <laughs> Absolutely. I have no idea how in the world those pants or weirdos do things. Um, <laughs> okay, I, this, I, I, <laughs> this is a first. I've yeah. been doing this for a little bit over a year. I've yeah. never heard anybody say they do anything organized, so lay it on me. Okay. All right. Well, here's the thing. I mean, if anybody were to see my desk at school, they would say, holy shit, how do you function? Because it's the most <laughs> unorganized thing. And then when I say I organize my writing, they'll say, no, I don't believe you. But <laughs> let me explain this. So what I do is I have notebooks. I have OneNote on my computer. And I'll sketch everything out by, okay, who are my characters? Who are, are what are my plot points? here are some of my arcs, everything else like that. But I won't outline. I'll just splatter things onto the pages. I'll draw pictures, some other things. So somebody who outlines fully, it would look like a mess. Somebody who's a pantser, they would look organized. So I like to consider myself somewhere sort of in the middle, but kind of more organized. I know where the book's going. I always know where the book's going to end. But here's the thing that I love. I'll organize everything. And then once I start writing, it'll go off the rails. So oh, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll have it all painted out. And then somebody will say, hey, you know what? Let's go left or let's go right or let's go on this roller coaster. And then I used to force it and I learned the hard way. It, your story sucks if you do that. So <laughs> I started letting things roll. And again, like with Feared Reaper, like there are things with Sam's romance and uh, the brothers' escapades and some other things. 
they just kind of happen and I kind of ran with it. So again, I like to have the whole map kind of draw the architecture of the playground. And then once I'm in that playground, it's like, here, let's just blow shit up and just <laughs> let it roll. So again, I have the skeleton of a plotter, but again, the soul of a panther. Okay. If that makes any sense whatsoever. But I need for my own mental sanity, because I'm so disorganized as a person, I need to have that framework to jump off of the start. Okay. But, yeah. Well, that sounds pretty similar then. I thought you were about to tell me you did the full on. Oh, hell no. Because literally, I think the only person, indie or even like mainstream person that I've ever heard of that outlines like they teach you in school or mm -hmm. if you buy a book would be Brett Easton Ellis. No. And he's psychotic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And when people see my notebooks, I teach a creative writing class too. And, and they'll look at it, it's like, what the hell does this mean? I say, I don't know, but it makes sense to me. But I, I write cinematically. So mm -hmm. I have to see the picture in my head when I'm doing it. But again, I'll see it. And then all of a sudden somebody in my head will switch the channel and do something else. And so again, I don't know if that makes sense. But again, if I can build that visual in my head to jump off of and then travel down some unexplored roads that's where i go gotcha well when it comes to your short stories how does the inspiration for them usually come to you and where's the strangest place you've ever gotten a story idea <laughs> <laughs> oh shit okay honestly it's funny everybody says the shower or something else i get most of my ideas from driving and i'll just put on some music in the background and i i used to keep a notebook uh in my car and I used to not look at it while I'm driving. I learned how to write invisibly without looking. And something about driving will just open up my mind and some weird stuff will come out. And it's usually emotion that will do it. Driving in a plane or on a train or even on a horse or something, or even swimming. It's something about the motion that will just, you know, get my muse kicking and going that way. But I mean, just sitting around and watching something, it doesn't do it. And even sometimes in my classroom, I'll be walking through the halls and I'll run back to my room and write something down. I haven't heard of anybody else who does it that way, but there probably are. Just whenever I'm in motion, things happen. Okay. Well, when it comes to your writing medium and atmosphere, I read your bio and uh, sounds pretty uh, picturesque. <laughs> is that uh, still what oh, you maintain or has oh, it changed? Absolutely. Lucky enough to, when we moved down to... Virginia here, and the reason I bought this house, it's a screened-in porch, and on a clear day, you can see up to 50 miles into the mountains, which is, you know, that's a far cry from New Jersey. So, again, something about that, just looking out into the night sky, and you can overlook downtown Stanton and everything else like that, it's just kind of like a blank canvas, and it just kind of is a great palette for writing, again, Besides being quiet and locking up the rest of the family and saying, get the hell out of here. Um, mm. Yeah, I think it's just the solitude out there and just kind of gives me that visual cleanser or inspiration. Whichever way it works, it works. Mm. Well, how would you describe your literary voice? Uh, you know what? I, I think I'm still developing that. Yeah. And I think, uh, gosh, uh, that's one of the toughest things that I've had ever had to work on and i think from my idols basically said you really can't work on it you can just basically chisel away until you actually discover it yeah. and i think as soon as i got away from trying to do it it just kind of happens and i think that when i've actually gone into different characters and i think i really hit my stride with this the new kids series i'm writing now which i have the first novel i'm trying to sell 
is I basically wrote, there were three characters and I, and I wrote journals for all three of them because I couldn't get into their heads enough. So I, I spent like a few hours writing each kid's journal and just letting them speak. And I, I got to see how that worked. And then I went back, I said, wait a minute, as I went back to edit the rest of my works in progress, I said, let me take the same aspect to this. So really, it's kind of like a method acting thing and basically getting over myself and just letting that voice kick out of me. And again, I've learned so much from Paul Wilson a lot. He's been like a mentor to me. Just basically saying, you know, make sure that your writing doesn't get in the way into storytelling. And, uh, and, and so again, it's, it's basically <laughs> saying, have that put on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. It, it basically is, hey, don't screw up your own writing with trying to be fancy. And I'm not a fancy writer. Mm-hmm. But he said, you know, every time you're trying to decide on a fancy phrase or something, don't, don't do that. You know, leave it to people who are much smarter than you. So I think that's helped me a lot. Just kind of like, just not thinking about what words I'm putting down. It's just kind of letting it rip. And again, at the moment I'm inside that character's head, it happens. So basically it's kind of the whole keep it simple, stupid type of thing. And I got a PhD in keeping it simple. So Nice. Well, what was the first novel you read and what feelings did the writing, not the story, but the writing evoke in you? Okay, I've thought about this, and and it was a Hardy Boys tale from way a long time ago because I remember mm-hmm. reading those when I was five, six, seven years old. And those um, were those were full on novels, right? Or yeah, were they okay? Yeah, no, they were they were novels. Yeah, I would say about two hundred pages or so. And I read that, and then soon afterwards, of course, I read a Stephen King novel, which probably was back then. It probably was Pet Cemetery, or. Pet Cemetery or The Shining, I can't remember which one. So I go through the first novel and it basically just told the story and it was everything that classwork wasn't. It wasn't like, okay, let's try to be formal. Let's break the rules. And the writing was basically saying, you know what? Do what you need to do to get the story across. And I remember thinking, this is so much different than what my teachers tell me to do. Mm-hmm. I don't like what she's telling me to do. I'm going to do it this way. And then, of course, when I read King and not novels, but Edgar Allan Poe's short work as well. It's the same thing. And just like screw the convention, screw the mechanics that you're supposed to do and just kind of fall into this literary conversation with the characters. And again, of course, King is so cliche to talk about. But again, I think his method of actually just speaking to everybody, no matter who you are, no matter what you like, really helped out. But again, even going back to the Hardy Boy stuff, it just, again, not worrying about the word choice, not worrying about fancy. It's just getting out of the way of the story and letting it roll downhill like a boulder mm-hmm. really kind of influenced me. Yeah, I remember the first novel I read was The Client by John Grisham. Oh, geez. I read it when I was eight years old. And obviously, you know, legal thrillers aren't my cup of tea these days, but yeah. I still think he's a great writer. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. I would definitely read one of his novels right now. But I remember... The reason that I wanted to read it was because I wanted to see the movie, The Client. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I saw the novel. I was like, oh, they made a book out of the movie, you yeah. know, not realizing the way it actually oh, yeah. worked. <laughs> but uh, I couldn't see the movie because it was rated R. So I was like, oh, well, maybe I can read this book. And I opened <laughs> it up and I just I was like, holy shit, how do people do this? This is amazing. Like, I didn't know that you could use words on a page because I used to mm-hmm. see people reading these thick novels. It's like, why would you do that if you don't have to? You know, when you're being a kid, mm-hmm. you're like, you don't want to, you're used to the stuff you read in school. I just remember thinking like, wow, this is incredible that people are able to do this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love Christian too. I mean, the firm and uh, Time to Kill. Now you're bringing things back. I, a Time to Kill is probably one of the biggest inspirations to me as how to get emotion down on the page. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, by the way, John Grisham lives about 45 minutes west of here. Shut up. <laughs> no, I'm dead. <laughs> I am dead serious. Have you ever met him? He doesn't, no, he doesn't oh. come out. I teach in Charlottesville and he's right around that area. He doesn't come out to play, but I'm still crossing my fingers. I do get to bump into him one day. Interesting. Yeah. Does he have like a ranch or something that he's, he does. He has a huge ranch and actually a couple of my students actually worked on his ranch with horses and they got to meet him that way. And they just got to know him as a guy Uh who was really nice and sweet and down to earth and everything else. So, you know, again, one of those things is (laughs) they just, Knew him as Mr. Grisham or Mr. G or whatever else they called him, but uh, awesome. loved loved his sense of nature and everything else. That's cool. But, yeah, you need to meet him and report back. <laughs> I, I, I do. And again, again, you know, it's yeah, one of those inroads there. Usually, yeah. it's for other writers, and this time it'd be through my students. All I have right. no shame, so <laughs> I'll do whatever it takes. Outstanding. Well. Is there anything you do besides reading that you feel makes you a better writer? And I imagine probably music is one of them. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Because again, our band is a hiatus right now, but we had a band of writers, which was not very good. I mean, just because, I mean, we're from all over the country. It, yeah, we couldn't be good. But oh, again, okay. David Morrell played keyboards for us. Paul Wilson, who's an amazing drummer, Heather Graham, singer, Blake Crouch, who's a great writer in it uh, some other people and we used to always talk about music and writing how similar it was you can learn phrasing learn about when to play fast when to show off when to sit back and do things that was a huge thing and i write songs not that they're good but i love writing songs and poetry and things like that and lyrics and i've learned so much about just spacing and breathing with the writing it's huge. It's a huge thing. And amazing that when we all got together as writers, it was such a huge parallel. And I've talked to Josh Mallerman about the same thing. He's in a band that's pretty good. And we've talked about this too. He's like, you know what? Writing and music are so much alike in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I think beyond music, which I can circle back to, is just teaching, honestly. Because again, I used to be scared shitless of talking in front of a crowd. And then I went up teaching. I was like, this is not fit. (laughs) Learning how to engage an audience, learn to skip over the boring parts, learning how to get their attention, knowing when you're losing them because then everything goes to shit. (laughs) And then basically how to change your meter, change your tone. And I actually do a workshop on music therapy and which music actually sticks with you, which music can lose your attention. And it all kind of weaves in with speech patterns and rhythms and everything else. And I've taught teachers how to be more engaging through use of rhythm and through other things that just pop up through writing and it just kind of interweaves in there it's kind of like how life is one big rhythm and just to Mm. get in there so i went off the rails there but again that's the best way i can describe (laughs) it oh not at all to counter that is there anything you avoid because you believe it stifles your creativity Oh, I cannot write around other people at all. I was once dating another writer and she said, you know, why don't you write next to me? I was like, no. <laughs> and again, so sometimes like just at being around other people, I need to be in solitude or at least kind of put myself in that trance where like I can at least be on my own. Sometimes 
in a creative writing class when we all kind of zone out and put some relaxing music on, I can write around other people. But usually I have to be by myself. I can have background noise. I can have a TV on or music on the background, but I can't have speech. And I don't know whether it's just the energy of other people or just kind of putting up my own walls and my own insecurities that come out with other people. I know it doesn't make sense, but again, I cannot write with somebody else in the same room. Mm. So I think I'd be terrible at this writing workshops that people go to just because mm. I need to have that complete zoned out experience. You know, even if I can have some ACDC or something else playing in the background, that's okay. But people just being there. No. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It blew my mind when I read that uh, Chuck Palahniuk wrote the majority of fight club in his notebook. I believe mm -hmm. he starts off yeah. in a notebook before he types it up, but at parties, yeah, like just chilling on somebody's couch with a notebook. I don't know if he was going to really wild parties, but you know, a room full mm -hmm. of people sitting around drinking, talking, and he's there penning a novel. <laughs> yeah. How does that happen? I mean, different people can do different things. And I get that. I understand how people can do that. It just doesn't work for me. I know that Harlan Ellison, sci-fi writer, used to go into coffee shops and in windows and just write a whole novel or short stories right in front of everybody. And I just don't understand that. Mm -hmm. It baffles me that people can do that. Yeah. I mean, everybody's muse is different. And that's why I call my other novel Dark Muse. And I think the mind that operates with Emmy is always in the shadows. I mean, it's going to have something dark. And then again, I have to follow what that muse says or otherwise she's going to say, sorry, I ain't giving you shit tonight. <laughs> but again, those rules, I mean, I've tried to bend those rules. And again, it comes back to whether it's my own stubborn brain or something else, I cannot get away from that. But again, I think everybody I've talked to has their own process, their own muse that functions in different, different conditions. And again, I learned that basically not to fight with her, just to go with it. Mm. And hey, I'm her slave, so I'll go with it. <laughs> well, do your friends and family read your writing? And if so, who's your biggest fan? <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. Okay, now here's a caveat to all that stuff. Again, okay. do they read it? Yes. Do they review it? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I know, I'm kidding. I'm half kidding there. No, my family is actually big fans of things it's funny because my mom will always be the first person to read it and she'll tell me like thank god this was good she's like i didn't want to have to turn around and tell you to suck like thanks i really <laughs> thank I really you for writing a good it. book I, yeah i read it she's like i was so afraid it was gonna suck i was like thanks but honestly what matters more to me i'm not discounting my family or anything but my students who read my stuff both you know high school and college students who read it because again they have no filters they will tell me point blank you know what? They say, Mr. Shims, this was great. Or this sucked. How did you get this published? <laughs> so again, that no filter zone there really matters to me because I know that if they're getting me a compliment, it's sincere. Yeah. Again, everybody else will bullshit me about things. Mm -hmm. So again, I think they constitute my biggest fan base just because, again, they will say, I liked everything, but you know, there's a typo here. It's like, shut up. <laughs> yeah. And I said, yes, I know. Just leave me alone. <laughs> but again, I think that for both positive and negative, I really value their input so much. And I love that more so than the family input, which I do value highly. Well, tell me a little bit about StokerCon. I saw some documentation <laughs> of your presence. Oh, I went to some of the earlier World Horror Cons for many years, and I always had a great time. And I fell away from it for a while, but I came back to it this year because I needed some cleansing because, uh, 
Yeah, I just have some old things. I mean, you were talking about pets before. It's like I had a 16-year-old cat pass away the week before that. And I was like, I need to get the hell out of the house and get away. Mm. But StokerCon is, tell you, horror writers are family. People think that there are some of the darkest minds out there, but I'm sure you know. Some of the best, the most pure souls out there. And so getting there around that many creative people, it is... Oh, God, it is like you're just tapped into everybody else's creative plug there and everybody's feeding off each other. These people who claim to be so socially inept are some of the best people to hang out with because there's no bullshit. I mean, everybody's just out there feeling weird, feeling awkward and then going to these panels and talks by some of your favorite writers or new people who you've just discovered is just learning about their mindset, their process, their new books, everything else is, it's electrifying. Again, I've been to some of the best concerts where I've been front row in Metallica concert where the amplifiers are just literally knocking me back. It's the literary equivalent of that, being at front row at a, an amazing concert. You feel like you're just being knocked around by everybody's creativity. And again, it is an amazing feeling. And I've been to writer conferences of all genres, but the horror community is Again, you cannot put into words how invigorating this is and how down to earth and how amazing these people are. And usually the more disturbing their work is, the more down to earth they are mm. and so approachable. And um, just sitting there, I got to interview Daniel Krause, who wrote uh, The Shape of Water and a uh, mm. novel of George Romero and his new novel, Whalefall, which is stunning. And we talked about this stuff and finding out that you know, we shared a similar mindset on all this. And we just sat there saying, wow, we're around amazing people. How cool is this? <laughs> and people were like, you know what? We're drinking, but we don't need to drink. We're just drunk on the creativity of everybody else. So mm -hmm. that was amazing. And then being there, realizing, hey, I'm standing next to Elizabeth Massey, who's one of my idols, who also lives a couple miles away from me now. And it's like, wow, somebody who I used to grow up reading is now standing next to me and we're friends. And... Gabino Iglesias and Ruth Ann and Gwendolyn Kist and some other people like that are all around me. And they're all just spilling and spewing all this creativity is amazing. And to find out they're just as normal as everybody else or abnormal as everybody else is amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And the wealth of material I came home with just how many ideas I came home with. Okay, let's tinker with this. And I had another like 10 pages in my notebook filled with let's try this differently. Let's try this. All these different things I want to try with my writing just based on being around these people. Awesome. Well, so I read about the genesis of your interest in music, but where did your interest in psychology come from? Because I think I read that you, <laughs> you started off a music major and the next thing you know, you're a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, why not? Let's go through all the majors that, that pay you nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah. When I do my ghost tours, I said, yeah, I you know what? I'm doubly poor. I'm a teacher and a psychologist, but um, no, but uh, honestly it started way back before then. I remember distinctly in fourth grade, for some reason, here I am at 10 years old, people would come up to me and start spilling all their problems to me, mm -hmm. even to my teachers. I mean, and everybody would come in like, you know, can I talk to you? And like, no matter who I met, they would just come up to me. It was the weirdest thing ever. And people who I didn't even know were telling me their life stories. And I never tried to milk anything. And people just told me everything. And sometimes people would say, you just have one of those faces or personalities. It makes me feel at ease to talk. And you actually listen. 
And I said, well, yeah, I listened because I can't get a word in. Um, but it's <laughs> when, no, but, but honestly, and now when I went to college, I was thinking of music and psychology are so closely bound. In fact, that they're both delving into what the psyche really is. And music cuts deeper than uh, anything else. And so when I played around with it, I was like, hey, music's not going to pay anything. Let me go over to psychology. And I really was bombarded by the different avenues that psychology was and said, wait a minute. I can just kind of be myself and get paid for it. And uh, and again, I realized I wasn't going to get rich doing this, but I didn't care. I've been really blessed with some teachers along the way. said, you know what, do what you actually enjoy doing and then the rest will happen. So I, I was stupid enough to listen to them and did that and got my master's in psych. And just, and again, I told somebody the other day, uh, some student of mine who wanted to go into psychology, I said, you know, what? in all my years of doing this, I've never had a boring day. And <laughs> I will take that. I've had some days that nearly killed me, literally. Mm. And some days sent me straight into lunatic asylum myself. But again, I've never been bored. And I'm fascinated by my field. But again, it started back in that fourth grade when people just came up to me and said, hey, you got a minute? And it just steamrolled from there. Mm. Well, what is the life of David Sims like outside of music, writing, and helping others? <laughs> what do you do when you need to recharge your batteries? Because all work, no play makes David a dull boy. <laughs> oh, yes. Ten-year-old uh, son who's amazing because I've yet to lose my inner child. Mm -hmm. and, and so just today we're at the pool just playing and throwing things around and doing something else. Just acting like a kid. We just came back from a southern trip of Savannah, Charleston and Myrtle Beach there and like going on all these rides and doing things like that. Reminding myself you're only old as you act or feel. Just constantly finding something to do to play to have some things like whether it's doing that or I mentioned the ghost tours earlier. It's a side job, but again, it's something I've done for the last 10 years, and it's never felt like a job because I get to be around everybody else, storytelling and just talking to people from all walks of life from all over the country. And again, I could have the worst day possible in my classroom and do my ghost tour at night, and I feel energized because people are just filling me up with their stories and their experiences and everything else. And again, I just get to put on a performance for that night, and it's amazing. So if I'm not allowed to talk about the music stuff or the other things we're reading, I have to go with just acting like a complete, utter, stupid kid, <laughs> whether it's throwing a football around with my students or playing kickball on the field with high schoolers or just, again, doing stupid things with my son. That will stave off the madness, at least for a couple hours. Nice. Well, David, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it has been an extreme pleasure on my end. This was so much fun. Yeah, I never know how these things are going to pan out, but it's amazing how amazing questions just open up the floodgates and let everything pour out. Well, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug, reiterate, or let your readers know about? Just the fact that, again, I am so happy that Fear the Reaper is still in uh, the forefront of so many people's minds, and I still get to do so many talks and signings about this stuff. So I'm thankful about that. And I like to say, yeah, read that. And I have an ongoing contest. Basically, leave a review of the book somewhere. And every time we get to 100 reviews, I'm giving away a night's stay at the Blackburn Inn, a.k.a. Western State Lunatic Asylum. So, <laughs> Are you being serious right now? I'm totally serious. What? I am completely, utterly serious. And all you have to do is say, hey, this book is great or this book sucks or something else with like that. Not because I know it's going to be a bestseller. It's not. 
but because I really want the dark history to be learned about. Because again, I have my other novels that are coming out hopefully soon. Those will be like ones I want to be, you know, amazing sales and I want the world to know. But this book is special to me. I just want people to read it. So yes, I am giving away a, a night's stay there. And again, why not? Stay in a former asylum. <laughs> <laughs> Haunted as all hell. But again, it doesn't cost me much. But again, if I can help promote the story, so be it. I will do it. All right. Well, let me know if I need to put something in the description, any sort of direct link to anything. I will definitely. Oh, uh, oh I can definitely do it. Yeah. All right. I'm just happy that somebody actually wants to read my work. And again, if it touches a few people, then I'm thrilled. But, you know, that's all I've gotten. Hopefully, in the next year, I'll have three more books to talk about. Nice. But yeah, Curse of the Barons should be out any day through Crossroad Press, through the Marisquera series, and hopefully that'll resonate with a bunch of kids. Awesome. All right, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And David, thank you again for joining me. And thank you. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the email newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will be joined by a familiar face that has written a dark sequel. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Okay.